Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, Cherie Harder will talk with Yuval Levin about his book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Levin believes that in our current moment of tension, division, and disillusionment, what we need is a renewed faith in and commitment to the institutions that support our common life and flourishing. A lot of people are using institutions as platforms to express themselves in the culture war, rather than as molds that might form us into better men and women. And that contributes enormously to that loss of confidence and also to the broader social crisis that we're all living with. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from November of 2020. You can find the full video of that conversation along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. Our guest today is one of the preeminent thought leaders in the realm of political theory and cultural studies, whose latest work, which we've invited him here today to discuss, offers an intriguing contribution to this conversation, as well as perhaps a counterintuitive analysis of our social, cultural, and civic dysfunctions. He argues that one of the greatest problems in our civic life is that it is our institutions that are weak. And they're weak not merely because they are distrusted by outsiders, but because those within them, their leadership, no longer takes them seriously. Rather than submitting to the responsibilities and constraints that any functioning institution imposes, those leaders have come to use the institution as a personal platform to gain attention and express themselves. As a result, our institutions, which so often serve to connect, mediate, and structure much of our social interaction, have lost their sense of authority, have been hollowed from within, no longer able to serve a morally formative purpose, and leaving citizens without the structures, support, and even strictures necessary for their individual formation, as well as their collective flourishing. Civic and cultural renewal, according to his view, thus necessarily involves not merely the restoration of moral principles or the reconnecting of citizens relationally, but the rebuilding of the institutions that form and sustain them. It is, our guest believes, and indeed has titled his book such, A Time to Build. And it's hard to imagine a scholar who has analyzed institutional erosion with more rigor or contributed to rebuilding efforts with more vigor than our guest today, Dr. Yuval Levin. Yuval is the director of the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where his research focuses on the foundations of self-government and the preconditions of civic flourishing. 
He's previously served as a vice president at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the executive director of the President's Commission on Bioethics, as well as a member of President Bush's Domestic Policy Council. His essays and articles have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Comment, Commentary, and many others. And in his spare time, he's produced more than five books on political theory, including his latest, A Time to Build, which we've invited him here today to discuss. You've all welcome. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Ray. It's very good to be with you. So let's just dive right in here. Most Americans would agree that the body politic is ailing in some way, that there's something wrong with us right now. But I think few would intuitively diagnose the issue as institutional weakness. Mm. So just to start us off, what are institutions? Why do you believe they're weakening? And why do you think they are a key factor in our current challenges? Yeah, thank you. That's really the, the the best place to start in thinking about these problems. And the the idea that the problems we face are in some level institutional is, as you say, counterintuitive. We incline to think about our society in rather individualistic terms. We think about our society as one big open space filled with individuals, and maybe they're having trouble connecting or or, or linking hands. And so we talk about tearing down walls and building bridges and leveling playing fields. And these things are very important. But when you actually think about how we build connection and how we arrive at solidarity in our real lives, the answer to that doesn't just look like individuals connecting. It often looks like some structure of sociality, some form of social life that lets us join together for a purpose. And those structures are our institutions. They're really the forms of our life together. Uh, and th that can mean that they are that organizations, that they are really, they have a kind of corporate form like a school or a company or a civic association or a church. But institutions don't have to be formalized like that. The family is the first and foremost institution of any society. You can think about a profession as an institution. Um, we can think about the institution of marriage or a tradition as an institution. What's distinct about it first of all, is that it is durable, it exists over time, and so shapes our experience of acting together over time. A flash mob is not an institution. But mo most importantly, institutions are forms, they're shapes and structures, so that when we act together, we're not just a bunch of individuals, we each have a role in relation to others who are engaged in that same activity, and it's the institution that gives shape to those relationships. And that means, especially importantly, that institutions are also formative. They shape us. They shape our expectations. They shape our character. Ultimately, they shape our souls. And they help to define us as human beings who are engaged in certain kinds of activities. So that when we talk in our society, as we, it's almost a cliche now to say that Americans have lost confidence in institutions. If we ask ourselves what, what that actually means, to have confidence in institutions means that we believe that that institution forms men and women who are reliable and responsible. We have confidence in them and in the institution's capacity to form them, to reward them for behaving properly, to give them habits of integrity. And so our expectation is that a functional institution will shape responsible people. And our loss of confidence in institutions is a loss of the sense that they do that, a loss of the belief that the core institutions of our society are really forming good people. That sometimes can happen because of, of just straightforward corruption. 
a failure to guard against the vices of the individuals within those institutions. That's always with us. There's not, it's not new, but therefore it doesn't also explain the enormous decline in trust in institutions. I think it is that second form of deformation, which you pointed to, where we come to think of institutions not as formative, but as performative, as stages, as platforms for people to stand on and put on a show and build an audience and build a following and build their brand. When we think about institutions in those terms, they become very hard to trust because we just don't think they're shaping people. We think they're displaying people. And once you see that pattern, you start to notice it in every part of American life. It's very powerfully evident in our politics where you know, think about what members of Congress do with most of their time now. So much of it is a kind of performance art, is a way of using the institution to stand there and convey uh, a view rather than act as legislators. But you find that in corporate America, you find it in the academy, in the professions, we find it in American religious life. A lot of people are using institutions as platforms to express themselves in the culture war rather than as molds that might form us into better men and women. And that contributes enormously to that loss of confidence and also to the broader social crisis that we're all living with. You know, I'd love for you to expand on that just a little bit more. We've been, uh, well, our current economy has been called in many ways an attention economy, where attention is the chief coin of the realm. And in many ways, uh, attention is equated with uh, if not power, at least influence, you know, a form of soft power. Yeah. Uh, so you see many organizations, um, you know, for-profits as well as non-profits, dedicating a lot of measurement to how much attention the institution or the leader gets. And they, they do so presumably because that is a form of influence or power. How does that kind of power differ from the institutional authority that you believe is important? Yeah. It's a very important question, and there's no doubt that oftentimes now we would measure influence by measuring uh, prominence, right? By measuring how visible what you're doing might be. But it's important to see that the people running those institutions have another set of responsibilities, an inward-looking set of responsibilities to the institution itself, to allow it to shape them and mold them by restraining them. Think of a profession, for example. A profession is an institution. It, it, its authority lies in the ways in which it constrains its members so that we can say, say about a scientist, that what really makes this person a scientist is that they follow a certain process and procedure. Their claims to knowledge and authority are constrained by their professional obligations. Similarly, there are things an attorney or an accountant just wouldn't do because he or she is an attorney or an accountant. That's a way of being constrained that allows that person to be trusted the same is true really in any set of institutions, where ultimately it's by showing that this institution has a particular purpose and a particular definition of integrity. And that's why we can believe its claims to authority. And that's why we can take it seriously and trust it. When we confuse that with prominence, when rather than say a journalist is trustworthy because they follow a certain set of procedures that let them distinguish truth from falsehood. Instead of that, you say a journalist is authoritative because look, she's got a million Twitter followers. That, those are two very different things. And it, you can see precisely in journalism, the way in which pulling yourself out of institutional strictures and putting yourself instead on a platform to perform on your own, to build your own brand, your own following, 
makes it extremely difficult to trust you and makes it extremely difficult to know if what we're looking at is a kind of display or is really the work of an institution that can make a claim on our trust. You can see similar kinds of, of distortions and deformations of institutional responsibility in our politics. Uh, I mean, look, whatever we may think of the president, when he tweets at the Department of Justice to complain about something they're doing, that's basically a failure to understand the job of the chief executive. He stands as an outsider speaking to or about the government rather than as an insider speaking for it. Uh, a lot of what's going on on college campuses now has that form to it so that rather than try to shape the souls of students through teaching and learning, universities offer a platform for expression and they empower expression instead of formation. And so important as it is to be prominent and be visible and, and let the work of your institution influence people, it's at least as important to show that that work answers to some standard and that standard is fundamentally institutional. When we lose sight of that, then it's hard to explain why people should care what we think as a professional or as a leader or as a member of, of an institution. Yeah, it's very easy to see the appeal of the performative to a leader of a particular uh, organization and that it's lots of attention, not a lot of accountability, a lot of personal prominence without a constraint, you know, what's not to love. Uh, but one of the things that's been surprising is that in many ways, that kind of performative nature has been uh, affirmed, accepted, applauded. Um, you know, we, we've seen different, say, members of the Senate leave committee rooms to immediately go podcast about what just happened. You essentially offering an outsider's play-by-play -play, um, on an institution they're supposed to be part of. So I guess the bigger question is, uh, why do we, uh, the people, essentially enable performative shirkers? Why do we uh, enjoy this, relish it, give them the attention, and uh, don't ask for the accountability? Yeah, you know, one reason to, to, for me at least, to write a book like this is to try to articulate the problems we face in these terms, because they're not the terms in which we might naturally think of them. When we think about the social challenges we have, just as you mentioned, from political polarization and the intense culture war to uh, to despair and isolation in people's personal lives. We don't think of them as being related to this challenge we're talking about, but I think they're deeply related. When we can't trust the institutions in our society, we begin to think of ourselves as alienated from that society, as not belonging to it, as it not being there for us. And a lot of that has to do with the way in which all of the insiders in our core institutions wanna be outsiders. They wanna pretend that they are outsiders criticizing rather than that they are insiders with responsibility. And our first inclination is actually to reward that because we begin from a tendency to think that authenticity is the same as directness, right? That the mediation of an institution is somehow fake. And so we like it when a politician steps outside and says, look, you wouldn't believe what happens in Congress. Let me tell you about it. Rather than actually working from within the institution and trying to do better. And so our, our first inclination, and it's just who we are, it's our culture, it's the way in which we live out our freedom, is to reward the maverick, to reward the outsider. And obviously, there are reasons for that. And there are ways in which institutional power can be oppressive, can be too strong and overbearing. But there are also times when institutional power is too weak, and when the, the structures, the forms that hold our society together uh, fall apart. And I think we're living in such a time now, and we have to teach ourselves, to habituate ourselves to expect 
the responsibility of an insider from our leaders rather than to reward them for stepping out and just all being commentators. When everybody's an outsider complaining about the establishment, there is no establishment. There, and we're in a moment now when the American establishment is extremely weak, not extremely strong. But we, we, the only language we have for speaking about our politics is this kind of resort to populist vocabulary that says the problem is the insiders. When you find the president and leaders in Congress talking that way, these are the ultimate insiders in our political life, then you know that something's gone wrong here. We're, we're somehow we're not understanding each other. And I, I think that requires us to recognize the value of institutional responsibility for constraining our elites and holding them to a standard and for empowering the rest of society and enabling it to exercise its own power in different ways. I think some recovery of the language of institutionalism is necessary for us to grasp that problem. So many questions. So we're going to get to language in just a second. But one sort of question that comes to mind is, you know, how much of the issue is the performative nature as opposed to the performance itself? You know, in that, you know, we think back to the 19th century, I mean, presumably Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, uh, while they were insiders, there was certainly a performative element to their, their oratory. Uh, but it seems like part, at least part of the issue is not just that we are a wash in the oratorical fireworks of modern day Daniel Webster's, uh, but rather that the performance is, itself is something more akin to you know, extreme fighting championship. So how much is the performative nature a problem versus the nature of the performance? That's a great question. And certainly it's true that, especially in politics, there's always an element of performance to democratic politics. That's unavoidable. It's, it's, it's good. It's necessary. We could use a Daniel Webster. I'm not sure we have a lot of those around, but part of the reason that we face a distinct problem now has to do with the way in which the performative facet of, the, of these jobs has overtaken their actual institutional identity. Some of that is a function of technology. You know, Daniel Webster wasn't always in the public eye. Most of the work he did was basically formulating compromises and bargains behind closed doors, which is the only way to formulate compromises and bargains. Contemporary politicians, if we stick with Congress for a minute, they don't really have anywhere to do that. Everything that they, all of their work in Congress now essentially is televised. And it's not a surprise that it becomes performative when it is all in the public eye. I think some degree of transparency is essential in any institution and especially in our political institutions, but it is also possible to go too far in that direction. And I think in a lot of ways we have as all of the deliberative spaces in Congress have become performative spaces what we find now, if you go to a congressional hearing at this point, you'd find not so much members learning from a witness or talking to each other about a bill. You'd find individuals producing YouTube clips, right? That's what happens in these, in these hearings. It's what happens on the floor. And there's less and less room for the institution to have an internal life, for its members to have their work to do, and then also to be in the business of talking to the public about it. These have to be two different things. And when they both become one thing, the performative will tend to overtake the rest. And in other ways, you see that happening in, in other institutions. As I say, it's part of what's going on in the academy. It's part of what's going on in corporate America. Social media puts us all in the position of basically being our own mini celebrities with our own little circle of followers. We become paparazzi against ourselves. We, we hound ourselves for photographs all day long and take away our, our, our privacy. It's a very bizarre way to live, right? But it's, it's created a situation where we think 
performatively, even about our own experiences. We're, we're in some beautiful place experiencing something interesting and we think, I wonder how this is going to look you know, on Facebook uh, later. How do I frame this photo? It, it puts us all in the bizarre position of constantly understanding ourselves in performative terms. And that makes it hard for us to think about the rest of our society in different terms than that too. So that some of what should be real activism or real engagement or real institution building just becomes expression instead. And people almost feel like they've accomplished something when they've given that thumbs up on, on, on Facebook or the like on Twitter or whatever. And, and so now I'm an activist and I've shown that I'm doing something. But just saying, I agree with that too, isn't actually doing anything. And you know, it, it keeps us from doing what we actually need to do to change our country for the better. You mentioned the use of language before and how important that is. And that's a, a topic of great interest to us at the Trinity Forum and also as, as followers of the word. And so I'm just curious if you could change the language uh, around this, what metaphors and terms would you use? That's a wonderful question. You know, I, I think that, I, I think there's a way that a lot of the problems we have now in our public life in America come down to a kind of unasked question. And the question is, given my role here, how should I behave? Mm -hmm. Thinking about our situation in those terms, in that language, can help us see that our responsibility is a function of our relationships to other people. And so not just what do I want or how do I want to be seen, but given the role that I have, whether as a parent or a neighbor or a friend, or as the president or a member of Congress or an employer, an employee, a congregant, a pastor, given that, how should I behave here? I think trying to stop ourselves and ask that question could dramatically illuminate the nature of the problem we face. And not just that, but it turns out when you think that way that a lot of the people who drive you most crazy in American life now are people who just don't ask that question when they obviously should. And a lot of the people who we just kind of quietly respect are clearly asking that question. They're very, they have a very clear sense of the role they have in relation to other people. And I think that's what it means to think institutionally. So some of the terms we need to recover are terms like institutional, which has a bad reputation, right? We think of it in bureaucratic terms or in cold, heavy terms, rather than thinking of institutions as the ways in which we empower common action and is necessary for that. But I think ultimately the term that I would, that I would bring back to life is just simply the term responsibility. You know, it's a wonderful word. Responsibility is an American word. It seems actually to have been coined by James Madison. The earliest use of it that anybody can find in English is in Madison's notes on the constitution. And it, it's a term that's used to describe exactly this kind of relational obligation. Given this office, given this position, what's demanded of me? That's a question that we all have to be better at asking. So you've talked a lot about the moral formation that institutions provide, but any institution that can form moral character is also capable of deforming it. And of course, one of the questions arises when one has been essentially habituated into compliance uh, by institutional power, it's much less likely that they will have the independence of mind to dissent when necessary. So in your research, how, how should one think about or navigate both the, the necessary constraints, even submission that institutions require to be morally formative, 
while retaining enough independence to dissent and question when necessary? It's a very important set of questions. I'd say a couple of things. First of all, it is worth keeping in mind that the argument for institutionalism is always a matter of degree. There are absolutely ways in which institutionalism can, can go to excess. It happens all the time. And where we end up defending the institution we're part of at the expense of basic morality, at the expense of the people that it ought to be serving, at the expense of a higher good and a higher truth. That absolutely happens. And there are also ways in which institutions can be oppressive, whether just by constraining our choice or they can be literally oppressive. You know, the term institutional racism is not a metaphor. It's a, it's a reality. And it, it's the kind of reality that we have to keep in mind when we think about the place of institutions in our free society. And yet at the same time, there's also a way, first of all, it, we have to remember that we need, we need functional institutions in order to have that free society. And it's especially people who are not in a position of privilege in our society who need our institutions to function. People with a lot of money and power are gonna be fine, whatever happens. But people who need their rights protected, people who need access to opportunity, they're exactly the ones who most need our institutions to function. But also there is a way in which institutional obligations can actually enable the, 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 the kind of resistance to corruption that you're pointing to, where an obligation to one's profession say, as, as I said before, as an attorney or as an accountant is precisely what would move you to rise up against a violation of, of, of ethics and of rules and norms. It, it, so that even when you're part of a powerful institution that tells you to do something wrong, you can then say, actually, no, I'm part of another institution. You know, I'm a nurse or I'm an attorney. And that means I don't do this. It can empower you in a way that precisely does allow you to stand up against violations of, of ethics and morality. And so it can give you the strength that's required to live up to a, a, a moral code and a code of integrity. But these are always difficult balances to judge. And I, I do think it's important to stress institutionalism now because we tend to ignore it, but not because it's the answer to every problem. I do think it's the answer to some of the most significant problems we face now, but it easily can go to excess itself, absolutely. Yeah. You titled your book, A Time to Build, and would love to get your thoughts on what that looks like, practically speaking. You know, it's likely that most people who read your book or are watching today are not necessarily leaders of institutions, uh, but are certainly involved in institutions, whether it's family, church, school, community, and the like. For people who are interested in being part of a rebuilding, what practical steps do you recommend being taken? So I call the book a time to build in one part because we tend to think this is a time to tear down. Mm -hmm. We we're all aware of the problems we have in our country, but we are inclined to think that the way to solve those problems is to tear down oppressive establishments, to drain the swamp, to burn this or or or, or tear up that. And of course, there's some need for that. There are genuinely corrupt establishments that do need to be torn up. But we have to see that in order to really shape the future, we're going to need not just demolition crews, but construction crews. We're going to have to build in ways that can enable us to solve the problems we have. Some of that surely has to happen at a large national level where reform of institutions has to happen. But a lot of it, I think, especially in our country, needs to happen from the bottom up. 
It has to happen in, within reach, in places where we face a problem and we have to resist the urge to stand there with our arms folded and wait for somebody to show up and fix it or to think of ourselves as just outsiders. And, and you know, I, I can't believe this hasn't been dealt with. Deal with it. It has to be our responsibility, not just not, not so much as individuals, but precisely by building institutions. I think when our country has when our country has strengthened itself and has recovered its solidarity, you can think of this, for example, at the beginning of the 20th century, after the kinds of social breakdowns that happened with the rise of industrialism at the end of the 19th century, we went through a period of institution building where all kinds of problems from integrating immigrants to dealing with urbanization to contending with the, the challenges that workers faced in the new economy to really a newly democratized politics, they all had to be dealt with somehow. And when you think about the beginning of the 20th century, there was a lot of institution building there, not only reforming existing structures, but building new institutions, new churches and new modes of religious uh, in, engagement. Uh, the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts came from that period. There were a lot of new universities started in that time. We don't even think of it as possible now to start a, a new university. It's actually not that hard, but it, you know, the things we now think of as having been around forever, some elite schools like Stanford and Johns Hopkins and the University of Chicago, they come from the end of the 19th century, from a period where people were responding to problems by building anew. I think this is a time for that kind of response by building anew. Our politics, you know, is kind of stuck. It's, it's stuck dealing with old grudges. It's stuck with very elderly leaders. I mean, without any disrespect, our president is 74, our president-elect is 78, the Speaker of the House is 80. That's very unusual. And it means we have to force ourselves to think about the future in our country. And I do think that means building and rebuilding rather than just thinking about whose fault things are and what needs to be torn down. Thanks, Yuval. I'm going to ask Yuval to give the last word. Well, thank you, Sri, very much. And my, my last word comes from a great hero of mine, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who one of the great Jewish leaders of my lifetime, who just died a few weeks ago. And one of the things that really s stays with me from what I learned from him is his distinction between hope and optimism. Rabbi Sachs says that optimism is a passive virtue. It's just the expectation that things will get better. And ultimately, it's not the right way to approach the world. But hope is an active virtue. Hope is the belief that we can make things better. And hope is the right way to approach our world. Hope requires courage and commitment, but ultimately it is also the reason why there's always a path forward open to us. And so even if this is not a time for optimism, I think it is a time for hope. It seems to me that after a discussion that takes up so many of the problems we face, it's important to remember that there are many causes for hope now in our society, and I certainly am hopeful about it. Thanks, Yuval. Appreciate the word of hope. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.